Hello, everyone, and welcome to Furloughed, defining moments worth talking about. My name is Leonard Cochran. I'm your co-host, and along with me today, we have Steve Otterstrom, and uh, we are really excited to spend some time with you again today. If you had an opportunity last week uh, to listen to our podcast, you you may have come away in a couple of different ways. Maybe on one side, you said, wow, those are two really amazing guys. Um, but more likely, <laughs> you said, well, that was that was uh, two guys trying to figure out what to do with their time. Because Leonard and I, uh, we've worked in hospitality for, uh, well, Leonard, how long have you been in hospitality? Oh, gosh, Steve. Uh, current companies, a uh, little over 18 years, and I've worked in hotels prior to that as well. So I, I've got a few years there. <laughs> 20, 20 years for 20 me plus. in March. So so between the two of us, we've got uh, 40 years of experience in the hospitality industry. And like what happened to so many people that were in hospitality is uh, they woke up one morning and uh, they saw that they were temporarily, hopefully we're crossing our fingers, very temporarily unemployed. And so we're in that group as well. We've been furloughed for uh, what they say maybe it's- as long as 90 days. And we're 10 days into it, Steve. And so, we're 10 days happy into 10 it. 10 wow. days. <laughs> 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 Time flies, right? <laughs> Time flies. And, and, and it gets confusing, too. I think that's one of the things that I've, I definitely have, have realized is it's much harder to keep track of what day it is when you don't go to work every single day. Absolutely. Um, one of the silver linings in this, and, and I, it's always difficult to find a silver, silver lining, especially where some people in this, a similar situation are, are struggling more than others, but Leonard and I have wanted to do a podcast for quite a while, and being furloughed made it so this happened. And, and it, as we thought about how we wanted this podcast to, to roll out, in the past we talked about something that had to do with, with uh, where we work, and that is in the training world. Um, and, and the challenge of actually creating a behavior change. We talk about all the training we do is really about trying to get someone to change the way they act. And so we, we try and do that by changing the way they think and we give them new knowledge. And oftentimes, maybe even a majority of times, it doesn't stick, at least the first time. And mm-hmm. with that said, with the difficulty that comes in trying to create change, we also have to acknowledge that as difficult as it is, it does happen. And sometimes it comes out of the areas you would least expect it to happen. You know, you, you beat your head against the wall trying to uh, teach a child uh, something, and then out of nowhere, they just get it. And it may have something to do with what you did, and maybe it didn't. Yeah. And Steve, even really last week, if you reflect on that, we talked about some change in your life, which, you know, part of your faith journey that you shared with us, that wasn't an instantaneous change that took a lot of steps and it was a slow evolution before you made some of the decisions you did. And then converse that with what I shared about continuing my education. And yeah, there was some resistance there, but the initial decision, that change, that shift that you and I are talking about really was pretty quick when that happened as well. And so we, we, we kind of weigh those out where we have some, some changes that are a little quicker than others, a little easier, a little harder, you know, so it really does vary. So it is an interesting thing. And so often completely unplanned. <laughs> I think it, that yeah, was maybe a absolutely. commonality between both of ours is that it wasn't something that we had sought out necessarily. Uh, but yes. that furlough moment, which just like in this circumstance, we, we didn't plan this year. That wasn't in our yearly objectives to go on a 90-day furlough <laughs> so that we could <laughs> we could um, attack some things that we didn't do in the past. Uh, it was something, it was just a, a curveball that life threw. And, um, you know, I, I, I was never much of a baseball player, so I don't know if you're supposed to swing at this curveball or not, but uh, we're swinging at it right now <laughs> with, this, with this particular podcast. And today, uh, we really wanted to think about some of the ingredients that go into being your change agents, the things that really cause change to happen in your life. And I think as, 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 as we're going through this week, and Leonard and I, of course, we, we have conversations prior to getting on this call. So if you think it's all 100% you know, spontaneous brilliance that's coming from us, um, <laughs> it, it's, 
it's a little more of a planned ignorance that ends up happening. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know if I have to plan that or not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not smart enough to do spontaneous ignorance either. So, um, <laughs> but as we were go. talking through this, you know, we, we were we were thinking about how you know this is actually a time of year where we're used to getting together with family. Oftentimes we think of the holidays and, you know, in the U S that's Thanksgiving and Christmas. And those are our holidays where we get together, but also spring comes with its own set of, you know, extremely family oriented, community oriented holidays. Um, mm -hmm. Just yesterday. And of course you might be listening to this at another time, but for us <laughs> recording it right now, just yesterday was Easter, which is a big time for a lot of families to get together. Um, around the world, there is um, a lot going on. Um, I, I believe Passover is, is currently taking place. It's going to end in a couple of days. Um, we've got, for, for some people, um, Ramadan that is starting at the end of the month, which is a big community um, type of, of, of celebration as well. Uh, and, and those are, you know, just kind of some of the, the spiritual ones. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, for me, I, I, I've never really been big at celebrating Easter, but either way, just the fact that spring is happening, this is when I pull out the bar barbecue and I start grilling. Of course, <laughs> my journey to veganism has made that really difficult. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Grilled carrots this year, huh, Steve? <laughs> yeah. Which is good, but yeah, um, there you go. yeah if, if there's anything that might knock me off the wagon, it's going to be the, the smell of briquettes that um, can make that difficult. But that's a time where, you know, we're, 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 it's getting warm. You get out, you get with uh, family members, people in your community that you haven't been with in a long time. And of course, right now, most of us are in some sort of state of quarantine where we're not... Um, able to go out and right. have those community and sometimes even those family events that we're so used to. Um, I'm sure that if it was any other year, I would have been up to my parents' house um, yesterday, but you know, I come from a large family and it really wouldn't have been safe for my parents to have us all get together. Um, and so we needed to, to handle that in a separate way. So that having, being that all of our minds are on family, uh, we thought that that yeah. might be where we want to, lead out this discussion. Yeah. And Steve, as we do, of course, it, we've had a full week since last week and all that too. So there are some additional things that tie in with our current situation of being on furloughed as well. So did you, did you want to jump in and say anything? What, uh, what, what have you had to do at your end regarding your furlough or is it running smooth as a top? How, how are things with that going? <laughs> and then we'll kind of dive in the direction of the family if we can. Yeah, I'm not sure what smooth is supposed to look like in, in a situation <laughs> like this. Um, I, I well, think, I'll be I glad think, to share what smooth is not if you if you don't have that story for us. Well, I, I believe that we're, we're supposed to go through the five stages of grief. Um, I think cleaning is one of those where, where we're, we're trying to um, – I've, I've definitely done a lot more cleaning – I've done, yeah. um, I, I, I told you last week, I learned how to make uh, cashew cheese. And this week I learned how to make um, uh, oat milk, which if you're wondering what it's like, just take some raw oats, put water in it and drink it. And that's, mm. that's, that's pretty much what, what it tastes like when I make it. It's not the same at the store. Um, but I think yeah. really, it, I, I was going to say, you don't a, need to do a commercial for oat milk then, Steve. <laughs> no, we're, we're it not sounded appealing by until now. <laughs> actually, what you buy at the store is probably, I, I actually do enjoy what I buy at the store, but uh, <laughs> what I'm making at home needs some refinements still before it, it has gotcha. a, a place on the shelf. But I feel like in a lot of ways, the emotional journey, and I'm sure that this journey is going to change a lot as it goes to a month and then two months and then hopefully we get that call that says, Hey, it's time for us all to be back. Um, right. But I'm sure that journey is going to be very different. But I think for now it's kind of like there has been this feeling of I've got to find meaning in this. I've got to provide some yeah. kind of meaning to what I'm doing. And so like I, I, I volunteered for a presidential campaign never done anything like that before so you're going to run um, for president well <laughs> you know I, i'm trying to help someone else run for <laughs> oh, president, oh 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 <laughs> i misunderstood yeah not, nothing quite that uh but Ambitious. really if you 
if you ever do um volunteer for a campaign really what you're volunteering for is to get a text every 20 minutes asking for a donation so (laughs) (laughs) well you might be better equipped for that than i am (laughs) (laughs) well i'm glad it's a text i don't feel guilty just deleting it out there you go. <laughs> it's the call on the phone. We're like, do you realize you could change the world with only ten dollars? And I don't yeah. quite realize that yet. So um, there you go. Haven't made any monetary contributions, but I do feel like there is that that need to have it mean something. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where where things go as we go into the yeah. next, you know, few weeks. Yeah. Well, and I don't, I don't know that I've gone quite as deep in my thought as you have at this point, Steve, but having been without a job in the past, I do recognize mental health is going to be and is currently critical, especially just with the whole virus and the, and the pandemic itself, mental health is critical. And so I've, I've tried to, the key word is tried, uh, to be more conscious of my attitudes and behaviors and thoughts uh, to keep them in a positive light. Uh, I uh, hate to announce this publicly, but it's not a surprise to anyone knows me. Uh, I can become short or a little snappy and certainly cynical and sarcastic uh, when I'm under pressure at times. And so just like this past week, uh, I had the wonderful experience of actually filling out the unemployment paperwork. And of course, it's not paperwork anymore. Everything's done by way of computer. And so it it was a long journey, but the abbreviated journey is this. Uh, I live in Mississippi. I'm just across the state line from Tennessee, and I work in Tennessee, as you know. And so I I was told that I needed to file in Mississippi uh, by by my HR representative. And so when I went to file in Mississippi, they let me know that I needed to file in Tennessee. And so I had previously been unemployed in Tennessee way back a hundred years ago. So I couldn't even log into the website because they actually held on to my previous user ID and password. So I had to make a phone call. Long story short, finally get into the system and uh, did get it completed. But I knew going in that I was going to be a little on edge. So I tried to exhibit as best patience as I could. And I, I, I didn't do too bad with it. I did clear the room so I could be by myself to do it uh, and, and did fine with it. Uh, and then, of course, as you just mentioned, kind of getting back on topic of family, you know, it, it was Easter week. And so you know, we, uh, we pretty much raided the grocery store and spent my last paycheck buying food. It feels like, and, uh, (laughs) but oddly enough, we've been under quarantine about two weeks now. And so what to have for that Easter dinner. And, uh, typically we would, in my household, we'd probably have a ham or just, you know, Mm -hmm. some big meal similar to that. And, uh, we had turkey instead. So we had an Easter turkey this year and, uh, (laughs) A little different, <laughs> um, and in with my house, uh, segueing in as we talk about family, uh, I've got four generations in my household. So I do have my mother-in-law that lives with us, and of course, there's my wife and I, and then our two children still live with us, and my uh, they're adults, but they live with us, and then my daughter, who's married, lives upstairs with our grandchildren, and so we did do somewhat of a traditional type of dinner uh of you know we gathered had dinner for easter together and just had a relaxing time um and so that's that's pretty much the encapsulates my week other than all of the internal painting we've been doing we've painted all of our walls <laughs> from one end of the house to the other still get the bedrooms to work on but it's been a busy busy week and so I, I've not had time to reflect quite as much as you have, though, Steve. <laughs> so, so painting is one of your stages of grief. Yes, yes, and uh, also <laughs> At least my frustration. Grief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've learned I have muscles that I don't use, as I sit at a desk for a living. And so, raising a paintbrush above my head or a roller above my head all day long does uh, make me a little cantankerous. Is a word my wife used, likes to use for me. So. Well, but well, let's go ahead and dive into our topic of family. Then uh, I know you said you came from a large family. You want to share just a little bit about your family and maybe how your family has influenced 
your decisions and where you are as an adult today, or maybe it's not had influence. Uh, talk to us a little <laughs> bit, if you will. Well, you know, I, th- I think the most interesting <laughs> thing ab- about you know looking at, at family and the, and the interest and, and and the effect that family has on who we become is that if I think about myself as a as a teenager as a young person, I would not have believed that my that I was in any way my parents, you know, that I believed mm-hmm. I was the most different and unique individual coming out of out of my my family structure. And 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 even I and I think that's pretty really, really common actually for a lot of children. And then and then as I get older, I really start to see that influence as I go, oh my goodness. Um looking in that personality mirror, I guess so to speak, and see my mother or mm-hmm. my father uh, there on the other side. Um, when I think about the impact that, you know, of course I came from a large family. So in some ways it's, it's kind of like, not only what did I get from my parents, but what did I get from my siblings? We all kind Mm. of seem to have our own role, our own special community that we were part of within that family. And I think one of the things that I found so interesting, especially as I got older and I got married, you know, I got married to someone who it seemed you know, on paper, we were really similar. You know, we, we came from similar backgrounds, similar, but, but yet we came from two different family cultures. Mm, and, yeah. and that was something I had never realized that culture, you know, is, is comes down to that level as well, that there is a, a personal family culture that helps define who you are. And, and I, and I feel uh, really lucky in a lot of ways. I, I don't know if I would have ever tried to go to college if I hadn't been raised in this family culture that that's just what you do. That's, mm. that's that next step. And, you know, we, we, we've discussed that next week, we're going to really be diving into education. And I think that's something that I, I got as well. Um, I think specifically about my father, um, who is really one of the most mild, patient people that you'll ever come in contact with. And I think one of the things that I, I, I find interesting that I got from him, or I hope to get from him, uh, was his ability to always kind of second guess himself. Um, mm. I remember one time he came home from work and, um, and this was, you know, came from a, a conservative background in a very conservative place. And um, at my high school at the time, they were trying to start a gay straight alliance club this has never been done before it hadn't been done in utah and mm-hmm. it was causing tremendous turmoil <laughs> in the yeah. community on whether that was the right thing to do now i like i said i came from a very conservative background um, so had my parents and um my you know and, and and at that time i was going to uh like a little church class every day after school and they had told me how to feel about it. And right. I was pretty certain that I was right in my perspective. My parents, I, I assumed, felt that they were right as well. But I remember my dad coming home from work and he said, I, I had a conversation with a coworker today and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's bothering me. And he explained that they had had this conversation about what was happening at, at the school and whether or not this club should be allowed. And he said, oh, I'm not sure I want to, I, I would want my kids going to a club like that and um a co-worker of his who was gay said have you no compassion now most people yeah. you say something like that and they're going to be upset they're going to say i have compassion coming up right. but, but and, and but i'm my gonna dad, put a dog on it <laughs> and i'm gonna prove my compassion but my dad actually he, he said he said instead he reflected on that yeah. comment instead of saying you know, I, I, I know I'm, I'm right. He, he has always had the ability to say, I know I might not be right. Hmm. And, and uh, even when I would try to explain that I had learned from people in the community that, that, that the perspective, you know, that we had originally had was correct. He kept falling back. I just don't feel right anymore about it. Hmm. And, and, and it's been interesting to watch him throughout his life and, and my mother as well, you know, they, they have gone through these huge changes, um, you know, at, at 70 years old, that's when they decided that they, they went vegan before I did, you know, cause mm. they decided that 
that was maybe a, a better way for them to live. And, and there's never any judgment on anyone else, but there are very few people that, that can continue to change throughout their entire lives. And yeah. uh, those are people who can do it. Um, very mm. impressive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and as you share that, that's as we've been using the term, that was your dad's furloughed moment. A moment then uh, is an example of one of his furloughed moments where you said he he paused and reflected, and when that person asked about his compassion, he recognized, you know, yeah, let's dig a little deeper, and and where is that compassion? So that's great. Yeah, and is yeah. there something to be learned from that compassion? You know. Yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. And I, I come from a much smaller family than you. I'm, I'm the third out of three siblings. So it was just, you know, family of five, traditional American <laughs> family, Ozzie and Harriet, family of five. And uh, so I, most of my life, I, I like to think that I learned from watching my brother and sister being the youngest. I was, you know, just a year, year and a half younger than my sister, who's the middle child. Uh, but I, I always, for whatever reason, sort of watch them and learn from them. And so my brother being the oldest always had to forge the way and make the decisions of, you know, what he wanted to do or fight for the rights that he wanted to do. Uh, and, uh, so I, I had the pleasure of just sort of sitting in the backseat and just observing them and making, making my life decisions, <laughs> if they're life decisions at that age, uh, make those decisions from observing them. And, uh, so it's, uh, it really, I know as an adult, just as you pointed out, there's times where I will say or do something and recognize, oh my gosh, this is my mother. This is my dad. This is whatever. Uh, and, and just, it sort of surprises you at time. And I, I think for me, I became most aware of it when I had my own children. And I'll tell you, there's nothing more humbling than to have your own child repeat verbatim something that you say with frequency and you suddenly realize, oh my gosh, that's me. That's what I say in the attitude in which my child perceives me. And so it's really a frightening thing when you kind of recognize the impact that you can have uh, on the life of somebody else, quite like family. Well, you know, and I think a lot of the things that we've been talking about here have really been kind of the, you know, one of the things that um, behavioral scientists look at in, in determining kind of the role that family has is this question of nature or nurture. And, and I think we've yeah. mostly been talking about yeah. the nurture side of things and looking at it from the perspective of things we observed and things we learned. But I, I think it's interesting. And, and I, I, I don't think there's any way for us to like peel back the onion and figure out individually for each one of us, to what degree is it a nature thing or what degree is a nurture thing. But right. um, I think it's, it's worth kind of digging into the um, nature side a little bit, you know, to what degree do we, choose to be one way or another and to what degree is it something that is is part of our dna literally built into how we work genetically and one of the things that i was i i listened to this week was uh, a lecture uh if if anybody knows me i i love books from the perspective of what's in them i don't like reading them on account of all the words that you have to read <laughs> but um <laughs> because of that Audible is a best friend of mine. <laughs> and uh, they have this uh, great courses series where they have college professors doing courses or lectures that are, are um, recorded. And I listened to one by uh, this uh, PhD, Mark Leary. He's um, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Duke University. And uh, mm. he was um, really kind of diving into how genetics affect your behavior and yeah. specifically a principle known as um, heredity or, or how um, inheritable, inheritable traits. And one of the things I found so interesting about looking at, at his research or what he had compiled together to give this lecture is so many of our traits even things like um, how likely we are to share or whether we like to read um, end up being things that as they, as they 
do these studies, they determine like, for example, reading, I believe it was uh, 37% of your desire to read <laughs> comes from heredity. So I can look back mm-hmm. and I can say, um, I guess I didn't come from a lot of literate people. Maybe, <laughs> or maybe, <laughs> or at least they didn't like to read anyhow. <laughs> yeah, or maybe thirty-seven percent. So actually, the majority in that case would come from a nurture side of things. Um, mm. However, um, also, and this is something we'll probably talk about more as we go into um, the education side of things. And my own personal mm-hmm. story is that I am dyslexic, and so. Uh-huh. Um, it, it that. that that is likely something that comes from a, more of a hereditary side of things, sure. and and and, sure. and and also accounts for my disdain for the written word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I can certainly imagine. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll have to unpack that more in the future. That's for sure. But it does make me wonder, you know, what other things, what what other things in my yeah. personality come specifically from, you know, those. Yeah. those hereditary items. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, on for you specifically, where do you think your genes um, kicked in? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Steve. And uh, I, that's going to be a tough one for me to answer. That's for sure. But uh, let me, let me say this though. I was so fascinated ninth grade biology when we learned about genetics, uh, for whatever reason, I was thrilled with my biology class. I took an entire year of it. And that's when we learned, you know, that brown eyes are dominant over blue and uh, all those different hereditary things that are built in our DNA. And uh, so, by the way, I have blue eyes. Uh, my dad <laughs> has blue. My mother has brown. Uh, so anyways, those, those are fascinating things. And so as we sort of peel that back and think about it, uh, gosh, that's tough to say. I, I know from a physical stature, I'm framed up pretty much like my mother. Um, I have uh, just, <laughs> if you put two boards together, that's kind of me. I'm just straight line. Uh, my hips are as wide as my chest, practically. I've never had an upper body strength at all. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm trying to think through and I don't know, but I, I certainly can tell you that, uh, behavioristically, I can see moments where I'm like my mother and moments where I'm like my father. And again, yeah, splitting that hair to know what's genetic or not. That's, that's something that I would be fascinated to find out. Let me share some statistics with you. And, and, and this might, um, might spring some loose uh, or maybe not because I, I've looked at these statistics already and, um, I still am at a loss to try and figure out uh, in my own personal life, other than things that like are diagnosable. So like dyslexia was yeah. an easier one to look at because, you know, you can go and have, you have tests taken and, and they, sure, and they, sure. they've, exactly. they've traced There's that back. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Condition is a little easier. Um, however, there are other things that we wouldn't necessarily think of as a condition, you know, such as you probably wouldn't think about whether you are uh, liberal or conservative as a condition. <laughs> However, right. uh, in looking at the statistic, it, it says that the heritability of identity as politically liberal or conservative is 43%. So basically, uh, social scientists have looked at this and said, we can almost, uh, we, we, can, we can apply um, a statistic that says 43% of your propensity to be one or the other came from your genetics hmm. rather than wow. coming through uh, the behavior around you. Um, attitudes That's towards organized religion, 45% is coming from genetics. Um, hmm. Attitudes about exercise, like whether you like to get up and get hmm. out of bed and go running. So if, if you don't like doing this, I'm going to tell you in just a moment how much you can blame it on mom and dad. So 36%. So if you get out and exercise, you know, uh, 55% of the time, well, that's pretty good. The other 36 is your mom and dad holding you back. I think that's what they were trying to say with that. Well, I'm going to cling to that 36% then. (laughs) I, I used to run, but I don't anymore. 
gosh, that's, that's fascinating that you, from the, like the political perspective and all that too, because I've, I've read some research and I really, it's a topic we can dig into deeper at a later time. Uh, But the impact of poverty and behavior based on poverty, and of course, poverty is not political per se at all, uh, but I, I, I have seen some information on that. And, uh, but I, I never thought of it from a political perspective, just from a economic perspective, I guess, maybe that there's some behaviors that are exhibited. Uh, but again, I wouldn't necessarily think genetically anything would tie to that either. So, well, hmm. and it's interesting because I was listening to this, this lecture by Dr. Larry and he's at Duke university. So hopefully he knows what he's talking about. Yes. Part of me was thinking, how is this even possible? How is it possible that you could inherit a propensity to be liberal or conservative? Like that, mm-hmm. that just doesn't right. seem right. And that does, just doesn't seem possible. How could that be the case? And, and uh, Dr. Leary said something that, that just hit me. And, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, I, I understand. And that is, he said that it basically is you inherit a nervous system. You inherit mm. and in, in thinking about your limbic system. And we talk about this in training quite a lot. We talk about like your survival brain. It's your brain right. that reacts to things. It's not your frontal cortex where you're thinking, not your thinking brain, but your limbic system is like where your emotions come from. Smell is actually in there as well. But um, but but a lot of your emotions and your behaviors come from that limbic system, which if you think about it as a computer and the hardware, you inherited a set of hardware. And just like with a computer, it doesn't mean that you are set in stone and you're going to have to calculate exactly the way that original operating system is set up. However, your response to inputs is going to be very different. If I had mm. you know, a calculator that was working on a base three system instead of a base 10 system, and I don't think there's any cultures alive today that use anything other than a base 10 system where you go 10 and then repeat the number. But if I had one that worked on a base three system, it would still be the same number, the same quantity. But putting those numbers into it would 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 give a very different look at that result. Yeah, and um, yeah. and that really is is what genetics does. It gives us a starting point. It gives us a way that we'll react to the inputs that come in. And it only makes sense that if we start with that same basic operating system, it's more likely that we're going to come up, we're going to react to things in certain ways that leads us more to be more liberal, leads us to be more conservative, uh, that leads Mm. us to be more prone to organized religion, to be away from organized religion, to like to read, to not like to read, to go out to exercise. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I can see that as you as you kind of unpack that, Steve, that makes good sense because I know, so it looks back, back to my personal self and it's always easiest to self-reflect because of, uh, well, maybe it's not easier, but I think it's healthier to sort of self-reflect before we reflect too much on others because positionally we do view the world from our lenses. And uh, I, I know for myself, uh, as a child, especially, everything was black and white. There were absolutes all the time. You know, this is absolutely the right thing to do. This is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And there were, you know, it's just black and white to me. And as I get older, I'm finding out everything is much grayer than I ever thought it was. You know, all of those absolutes are sort of melting away. There's conditions that still make them absolutely true. And there's conditions that make it absolutely wrong or false. But as a child, it wasn't the conditions that mattered. It was sort of the rules, the structure. And that is probably something uh, you know, I can see from a genetic perspective that I may have received because uh, I can look and see a long line of that in my family. Uh, but I, I, it'd still be kind of a hard-pressed thing, though, to determine whether that's nature or nurture. Uh, but I, I can see it, it, it could well be just nature itself then uh, as, I, as I sort of ponder that over. That's interesting. And it's all moving parts. You know, it's, it's yes. not like, um, <laughs> and even as you talk about it, you know, we, we think about our brains as being developed as, as a child. And then the, you know, the genetic side is over. Yeah. Now it's got to be all nurture from here, but that's not yeah. really true either. Our brains continue to develop throughout our entire lives. Yeah. And, um, you know, something that you said, uh, 
made me remember uh, something that when my, my wife, Elizabeth, was uh, going to uh, university and she was uh, studying human and family development. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that I, I found extremely fascinating and that she shared with me, so I really don't even know where to, to point the source. So I might be speaking completely, complete falsehood. <laughs> maybe we can, maybe we can find <laughs> we'll this, uh, we'll find this Dr. Leary <laughs> that I was listening to and we'll ask him. But <laughs> yeah. one of the things that I remember her telling me was that um, when you are, are a young adult, there are certain linear things that your brain does better than an older adult, generally speaking. Mm. That you, um, most math mathematicians, kind of like athletes, they peak around 28 years old, maybe into their 30s. But then you start getting more of a mystical ability to see things. Mm. That as you, and I don't know if this is is entirely that your brain is just changing with age, or if it's also part of that that um, nurture side of things. But as you yeah, cross from 30 and and grow on, you have an ability to see both black and white at the same time, that you're much more comfortable with this idea of gray space in between, especially when it comes to values and, and morals, uh, that sometimes that can, that is easier to see as you go, as you get a little older. Now, with that said, I think sometimes mm-hmm. as we get older, we get more stuck in our ways um, as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. But but it but interesting as you bring that up, that as, as you go through life, you've definitely been able to see the space in between a lot better. Well, it, yeah, it, and, and you as you were speaking, it hits on the fact that we, I think I might have mentioned it briefly last week that, you know, our neural pathway. So as, as your brain develops, we have a system of habits and things that happen in our lives, whether it's by choice or not by choice, but we, we begin to develop our brain responses to those habits and to those systems. And we know, just as you say, uh, it used to be once upon a time that we thought your brain was developed and that was the end. And you slowly got dumber because you lost brain cells as you got older, but we know that's no longer true because we have neuroplasticity. It's like a muscle and you can continue to keep that muscle exercised and continue to grow. And yes, brain cells do die, but they're replaced with additional cells as we continue to grow and develop. And uh, nonetheless, uh, we can develop new neural pathways. We can develop new habits. And uh, again, it kind of ties back to what we're talking about with change, where as an adult, some some of the time, those have to be very... Um, it has to be a decision, you know, that we, we don't always change by habit, but we have to make a decision. And just as you talked about running earlier, I used to run myself. And so if I'm going to get out there and run, I'm not going to go out and run a marathon tomorrow. I'm going to have to practice. I'm going to have to build up those leg muscles again, build up the endurance in my lungs and get that blood circulation going again. And so it's really the same type of process with our brains of just building it up and working on that again. Well, I think that's one of the most promising things about the concept of neuroplasticity is that if you do something even once, you've increased the possibilities that, you can do, that you'll do it again. And that's for good or bad. <laughs> you know, if, if I go into a store and I shoplift something once, it will be easier for me to shoplift it a second time. But <laughs> that's, that's on the bad not side. Not an advocate of that idea, Steve. <laughs> not yet. But, you know, as, te- as toilet paper gets more scarce, <laughs> might have to go to more drastic measures. Um, however, but from a good side, you don't need to say, I'm going to run a marathon if, if it's important for you to improve your health. Don't don't feel like you need to now come up with an entire plan. Go out and run once. Go out and walk once. If you just do it once, you're more likely to do it a second time or a third time. And every time you do it, you know, I think uh, um, a statistic I heard years ago is saying that, um, you know, how often it takes a person to to quit smoking, to actually quit smoking. And, and what mm. they said yeah. that on average, people quit seven times before they, they 
finally quit before they're finally done. And the reason why it works that way is because every time they quit, they learn something. They gain another ability. That neural pathway is carved a little deeper and it becomes a little easier for them that second time or that third time. So I feel like it's the same with exercise, except for I'm on like my 570th attempt to try and make that a habit. Yeah. Still, every time that I do that, it's going to make it that much easier for me to do it again or to bring that yeah. habit back if I had it in the past. You know, bring it forward. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. It, it, yeah. I know I was thinking too, uh, there's, there's a lady by the name of Dr. Sarah McKay. She's from the, uh, she has the neuroscience Academy and, uh, she teaches neuroscience and she's specifically interested in aging in the brain. And one of the things, uh, that I learned from her was, uh, she had done a program that was televised in Australia where she's from. And, it was a older um, retirement community of, of older people, I should say, not an older community, but the retirement <laughs> community of older people. And uh, they ended up teaching them to sing. They had a choir. They created a choir. It was an activity that didn't exist. They came in and had a choir. And one of the things that I took away from that was when they were singing together in unison together, their brain waves, similar to as you and I watch a heart rate on a machine, their brain waves got on similar wavelengths with one another and they unified with one another. And I think, you know, as we talk about families and we talk about nurturing versus nature, I think that's where a lot of it comes in is we end up getting in unity with one another. And therefore we know, or at least I know from having watched that program with Sarah McKay, uh, that once you get in unity with one another, you're in similar brain wave patterns with one another. And therefore, you know, whether it is nurture or nature, um, we grow in the environment we do, the families that surround us, and it really can have that impact for us and, and create uh, the results uh, of, of what we see around and what we're used to seeing. And it's breaking those changes or breaking those habits that oftentimes is quite the challenge because it's not something that comes natural to us because of the nature or the nurture that we have in our lives. And so I, I, I've, I know there are areas of my life that I've tried to make change uh, that is maybe different than what my family does. And that's something that's a continual practice, a continual work. And I know it's, it's, it's building that neural pathway. It's building that change to make it a habit, uh, to make it easier. And, and hopefully become a better person for having made the changes that I've made. Well, Leonard, I think you really hit on maybe where we can expect uh, family and the influence of family to move into the future. You know, as you give that analogy of the choir and uh, them coming on to a similar wavelength. And, you know, when we talk about family, it can be much broader. We've, we've really kind of spent a little bit of time talking or quite a bit of time talking about um, genetics and, and things that, that would biologically relate us one person to another. But I think one of the things that we can see, especially in the world today, and I, I believe it's extremely positive, is this concept of the family that we choose. And it's interesting that you talk about like this choir singing together. And mm -hmm. as they sing together, that's creating this harmony. It's creating a community. It's creating a unity. And they're all benefiting from that. Now, if somebody sings a different kind of music, maybe they find that that choir isn't working for them. <laughs> and so right, they go and right. they find, they find another group that has that same harmony. And, and, you know, probably in our, you know, metaphorically, we all have our own little choirs for little, for different things. I've got my work choir and we sing in harmony on this. I've yeah. got my friends that I hang out with afterwards. And, um, and it builds this, this conglomerate of different, different communities, different families, and I think in a lot of ways that maybe even is the future of where we're headed uh, with how we define family maybe 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Well, there's definitely a shift that way. We know, we know that, Steve, and I know we've got statistics that show just, just the simple fact of birth rates slowing down, uh, depending on demographics, but birth rates slowing down and things like that. But yeah, I, you know, 
what, uh, let's say five years ago, I don't know that anybody used the term Friendsgiving instead of Thanksgiving, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So culturally, we are kind of seeing that shift, that's for sure. And tied with that, I suspect, is uh, the age in which people are marrying is getting later in life. And again, there's a lot of social repercussions as to why and the results of the, uh, I shouldn't say repercussions as to why, but there's a lot of reasons why and some repercussions of it as well. But I I do see that we are shifting that way, Steve. Yeah. uh, That's uh, kind of an interesting phenomena. I think we, to your point, I think we're still fairly early on in that. Just add some numbers to, to those two points you made. Uh, sure. Fertility rate, 1960. Um, the average, uh, the average amount of children a woman would have in 1960, not that year <laughs> specifically, but a woman living in 1960. <laughs> yeah. um, the average amount you, that of, of children a woman would have over the course of her life was 3.5. Hmm. In 2017, that number was 1.76. So yeah. it's, it's significant decline. And I, I'm sure that really changes. We still have that same need for family. Like for yeah. me growing up, I had a few really close friends, but I didn't need to go out and find a lot of other close friends because I had, you know, I had four brothers and a sister. You know, I had I had built in friends all around me. And when we had uh, big family events, when when cousins are over and and all of my family was there we didn't need a larger community. We were a large community. But I think as we see that come down, that same basic human need to have community, to have people around us that we're close to, that we can rely on in a pinch, it's still there. And so now we, we begin to reach out a little further and then talking about the average age, and this could have as much to do with, with why the um, fertility rate is so much lower than, than it was, you know, looking about like 1960, the same period of time, uh, 1960, the average age for a woman to get married was uh, 20. For a man, it was 22. Uh, 2019, it was 28 for a woman, and it was 30 for a man. So mm. we, we definitely are seeing a, a large shift in that dynamic. And it's not whether that's good or whether that's bad. It's just it means that I think we will see a difference in how we define family because even even if you look at that time period from from 20 to from tw- almost a decade in difference, that's more time to gain friendships that last over a longer period of time. So you have Friendsgiving <laughs> because, hmm. you know, if, if you get married right out of high school and you move somewhere else. Yeah, you're you're pretty busy with your family. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're not going to be able to develop those those relationships that you would yeah. have been able to develop otherwise. Yeah, very, yeah, very interesting. It is absolutely well, and I think you know as as we kind of begin to reflect and summarize things, I I think what without question we we know we are a product of where we're from, <laughs> whether it's nature or nurture, either one, we are a product of that. The encouraging thing, though, uh, well, not that that's a negative, I'm sorry, but we can always be encouraged by the fact that we can change, you know, so if it, whether it's nurture or nature, we can still change. You know, you, you mentioned genetically, of course, dyslexia, and your story is not alone. There's plenty of people, for whatever reason, so many celebrities have dyslexia, so you should be famous, Steve. Uh, but I'm working on it. Get a <laughs> few more shares and likes on this podcast, and I am there. <laughs> Absolutely, get those reviews on iTunes, and we're golden. Uh, but anyhow, we we we've seen, or at least I'm familiar with, several success stories of people overcoming dyslexia, and certainly want to hear more about your story in the future. Uh, but that is obviously something that's genetic, and, and so we can make choices and make those changes. Um, and then I, I think we could maybe dig in a little bit more in the future as far as why the family is changing and we can kind of ponder on that and think about that but there's no question it is changing um but again the important thing to remember our brains are ever growing and we can always make changes and uh uh, 
Britt Andrietta has a book out that's called Wired to Connect, and she delves into that. Now, I've not had a chance to read it yet, but I'm familiar with Britt's work. Again, it's Britt Andrietta. Uh, she once, she at one time was the chief learning officer of lynda.com, which is now LinkedIn Learning. And uh, she's got some great insight, so uh, you might want to check that out as well, Wired to Connect. And there's no question that we do need either friends or family. And as we kind of ponder it, again, kind of in closing, thinking about it, you know, as we're going through this pandemic, as <laughs> those of us going through furlough are here, uh, it's vitally important that we have a surrounding of at least similar-minded folks to be a support to us. Um, I mentioned before, I teach a wellness recovery program called a Wellness Recovery Action Plan, and it's advised to have five close people that you can count on uh, to share your feelings with and to be open with and, and just to de-stress with one another. And so whether that's a family unit that you're born into or a family unit that you have chosen, as Steve alluded to. I uh, just want to encourage our listeners to make sure, you know, inventory, who do you have? And I'll admit, Steve, uh, I'm I, I'm a guy. <laughs> I think my list ends pretty quick. I don't even know if I can fill five fingers up. Uh, but See, it's I can call you Leonard. That. And I could call you Leonard. <laughs> I, I, That's about it. I think I got a couple of other people, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a few, but it is a very few. But gosh, just having somebody uh, during this time, I think is really important. Uh, Steve, do you have anything else you want to add before we kind of wind it up here? Just really enjoyed uh, spending some time with you, and I'm really looking forward to um, kind of sharing our stories next week, especially as we delve into education. And I'm excited to um, to hear more about Leonard's experience. I'm I, I'm also a little bit frightened to share my own, but I I promise to uh, when we do that next week. All right, great, thanks, Steve. So yeah, as, as Steve said, we'll be talking about education next week. So I, I'm excited to share with you. We have a mailbox now, so you can reach us. If you want to email Steve or myself, if you'll go to furloughedmailbox at gmail.com. So in you don't have to go there. That's an email address, furloughedmailbox at gmail.com. And tell us about your family experiences or maybe some other areas you would like to, us to have explored that we didn't regarding family. And then certainly uh, next week, as Steve said, we record these on Mondays. Uh, we're going to be talking about education. And so if you've got some thoughts you want to share about education, love to have feedback from our listeners, all three of you. Uh, love to hear from you guys. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll continue this and move forward. And in closing, uh, just like Steve said, thank you all for being here again. Thank you for listening. Just do want to mention again that this podcast is sponsored by Upwards Unlimited. Upwards Unlimited engages, equips, and empowers people to live their lives to their full potential. So again, that's up, W-O-R-D-S, unlimited.com. So be sure and check them out and tell them we sent you. Until next week, everyone, enjoy your time with those that are surrounding you. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.